Good morning to you. See if this sounds familiar. Come and listen to my story about a man named Jed. Poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting up some food and up through the ground came a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Texas tea. Black gold. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire, the kinfolk said. Jed, move away from there. Said California is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up their truck and they moved to Beverly. Hills, that is. Swimming pools and movie stars. And that was the theme to the aren't we a cultured crowd. Um, <laughs> as you think about the Beverly Hillbillies, they were dirt poor and they lived in a one-room shack, and yet they were sitting, unbeknownst to them, on a fortune of untapped oil. Many times, we don't understand where we truly stand. We don't comprehend all that we already possess. And since we fail to understand our existing riches, we, we jockey and we scheme to improve our presumed poverty, to climb the ladder and get ahead by stepping on our other brothers. And it is in the midst of this kind of confusion that the Apostle Paul writes to us all today. And today we're in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 23. And it's a terse six-verse summation in answer to the question of how to arrest factions and divisions within a local congregation. And the answer of Scripture is simple, and it's simply this. Christian, cease jockeying for position and start comprehending your possession. Christian, cease jockeying for position and start comprehending your possessions. Now, we're going to unpack this over the course of two Sundays together. We're going to dwell on the first part of this concept in our time together today. Now, 1 Corinthians 3.18 is on page 1212 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, please use one of ours. That's why it's there. Page 1212, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. As we turn to the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word in prayer. Father, we ask that you would roar through the whisper of Scripture. You and your still small voice speak with a clarity and a resonance and a power that is uneclipsable and unimaginable for the uninitiated. And so we ask, Lord, that your word would do everything that you have promised it would do, that it would not return void, that it would divide down to spirit and marrow and joint. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would indelibly imprint upon us the foolishness of the things that we would run after. Uh, Lord, would You wash us in the Word and so that we would be transformed and renewed in our minds and in our thinking that we would appropriate biblical wisdom and we would live in ways that bring You glory and our neighbor good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says this in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. That's probably a verse you ought to underline in your Bible. We forget that, don't we? Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool. 
fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now, there are two commandments to the Christian that we must never do, and they are found in verses 18 and verse 21 in our passage. Uh, They are signified by, in the English, the command, let no one. Let no one, verse 18. Let no one, verse 21. Let no one do this. Let no one do that. And so the first imperative is point one on your outlines. If you go in your bulletin, you open it up, there's an outline. We'll be in point one all day today and the sub-points therein. The first imperative is this, number one, Christian, cease the self-deception of employing worldly wisdom. Christian, cease the self-deception of employing worldly wisdom. Now listen again to 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 18, very plain, very blunt. Let no one, what? Deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Uh, Now, this injunction uh, has a two-part description, which first warns against self-deception generally, uh, but then specifically regarding our proclivity to think unbiblically. And so let's break this warning into its parts today. Uh, because both of these parts will tug at our hearts and will pull us away from God's best. That brings you to letter A on your outlines. Letter A on your outlines for this. Beware, brothers and sisters, for each of us are master self-deceivers. Beware, brothers and sisters, for each of us are master self-deceivers. When we think of deception, we don't think of ourselves as our greatest enemy. Usually, when we think of deception, we think of others deceiving us. And indeed, the scriptures say that does occur. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, it warns us of such deceivers. 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So so the Bible says, yeah, there are others who pretend to be brothers and indeed pretend to be leaders, but they're on their own mission. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And so the Bible tells us we must be discerning or we will be deceived. Ephesians warns us that deceitful workmen will cause spiritual infants to be turned inside out and upside down, so the Bible says instead you ought to grow up. You ought to not stay a spiritual infant. God's Word urges us to grow up in Ephesians. It says, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheme. You see, you're either going to be turned inside out and upside down, or you're going to grow up. You're either going to be blown around by false teaching, or you're going to be moored to the truth. Those are your options. Now, 
There are deceivers. There are deceitful workmen. There are false apostles. There are wolves in sheep clothing. But behind that, there is a larger enemy. The Bible calls this deceitful schemer the great deceiver. Revelation 12.9. Revelation 12.9 lists him by five titles in rapid succession. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The deceiver of the whole world. Now, in addition to the deception of Satan and, and his false workmen, the Bible warns us that the world is constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. Jesus tells us the world are like the weeds that are showing up in your garden that are trying to choke out all the good stuff that you're trying to plant in that garden. Jesus tells us the world is like the weeds that try to choke out God's good gospel seed. In Mark 4, Jesus says the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things. Well, they come in and they choke the Word and they, and they make it unfruitful in the garden of our lives. And so, the Bible says we have human deceivers. We have the great deceiver, Satan. We have the press of this world. But friends, Paul is going to tell us today that our problem is much greater because our problem is much closer. The most formidable foe you and I will face when it comes to the prevention of the deception that will lead to our destruction is not found over here, it's not found over there, it's found right here in the mirror. The Bible is clear, you and I are master self-deceivers. And this is true for both the lost and the saved. Don't go, oh, well, that person who doesn't know Jesus, that's who he's talking about. Yeah, he is talking about him, but he's talking about us too. For, for the lost, the Bible says one of the biggest things that, that we deceive ourselves to not come to Jesus and need a Savior is, is we say, well, I'm not such a bad guy. I don't really need a Savior. That guy maybe needs a Savior, but I'm okay. And the Bible says in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The truth is Jesus. If you don't think you need a Savior, you're not going to reach out to Jesus. Did you know you could be highly religious? It's not the atheists who corner the market in this self-deception about being less than needing a Savior. You can be highly religious and yet be perilously seeped in self-deception. Jesus tells us in Luke 11 that the most fastidious at being religious missed heaven because of self-deception on the sin situation. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus puts it scathingly and pointedly, and yet, in their self-deception, the Pharisees, they miss the point entirely. And so the judge of all the earth warns the, the self-righteous who were self-deceived. He says this, Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, that is, they look bright and shiny on the outside when you pass by, which are outwardly beautiful, but within, what's inside of a whitewashed tomb? A sepulcher. You're full of dead people's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. That when you, when you open that pretty facade, it was all this death, an overpowering stench. Jesus says, 
so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and and lawlessness. And so, friends, self-deception is the most dangerous kind of deception. Because if we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, then then the more and more that self-deception sort of siren song of seduction will strengthen and it will tighten around us like those weeds that choke out God's good fruit. And this is why the wisest man who ever lived, he compiled a list of moral maxims and a parchment we call Proverbs. Have you read it? The Holy Spirit endorsed these maxims and, he, and the Holy Spirit made sure to include it in our Holy Scripture. And I want you to listen to the wisdom of Proverbs as it raises the alarm at our proclivity to iniquity in the projection of self-deception. Proverbs 12.15 says this, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to death. And so, as we turn in our passage today, with fresh eyes to see, and I hope new ears to hear, verse 18, friends, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, everyone else says he's a pretty smart guy, he's following the ways of the world. Let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Friends, self-deception is so powerful because it it sounds so beautiful. It sounds so believable to you and I. Its delusions are delicious to us because they generally affirm what we already want to believe. I'm not a bad guy. Things are going okay. This is how you get ahead in New Jersey in 2019. Everybody's doing it. This is why Jeremiah the prophet warns in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? It means I can't always get my own understanding of my self-deception right. I, I need God's perspective or I will deceive myself. And this is why David, David was a man after God's own heart, Scripture says. And yet David, a man after God's own heart, didn't trust his own heart. He didn't trust his own heart. He asked God to search it. In the old King James, David's words in Psalm 139, 24 go like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and then lead me to the way of everlasting. Do you know Christians aren't immune to the seduction of self-deception? James warns Christians of the possibility of self-deception when he writes, you know what, don't just be hearers of the word, be... See, you can sit under sermon after sermon and go to Bible study after Bible study, you can go to Bible college and Bible conferences, and you can have Bible be your middle name but you could live very differently than Jesus tells us. Hearers of the word versus doers of the word. The author of Hebrews urges Christians tempted to return to the very things they were saved away from. The writer of Hebrews tells all those collected Christians of Hebrew heritage that we ought to encourage one another daily 
That's why you can't be a Christian in isolation, friends. We ought to encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, that is, until Jesus comes back, so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Right now, the world, the flesh, the devil, your job, your friends, some of your Christian friends, are, are, are subtly saying things that are the opposite of what God says is best. And you're going to need to have your compass set to Jesus or you're going to go the way of the world. Friends, sin deceives. It, it promises release, but it only delivers bondage. It promises relief, and yet it always produces pain. And so Paul gives the clarion call to us all, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. Now this injunction has a two-part description in our passage. Uh, which brings us to point B. Worldly wisdom is spiritual folly, and we follow it to our peril. Worldly wisdom is spiritual folly, and we follow it to our personal peril. Do you realize that half of our passage is devoted to this one message? Listen again. Let no one deceive himself, as in, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly, according to God. Friends, the wisdom of this world is folly, according to God. The wisdom of this world says, if you have a problem, obsess about it. God's word says pray about it. Which one of those is going to get you somewhere? one of those do we do by default? Do we obsess about it? Do we pray about it? Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The world says go over and over and over it until you can't get over it. Fixate on the problem until it robs you of sleep. Obsess until you are so stressed about what might be that you cease to be. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food? And the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of those flowers. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, and then is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So what do you do when there's that grain of sand up against the hot spot in your life? 
Do you pray or do you obsess? And which one gets you somewhere worth going? The world's wisdom says, give her a piece of your mind. Right? God's wisdom says, tame your tongue. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone, and when words are many, sin is not absent. He who holds his tongue is wise. Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of his mouth that defiles a person. The world's wisdom seductively says if someone is steaming you up, gossiping about it in the break room is the best way to let off that steam. Right? 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 Am I right? I, I live in this world, too. God's wisdom says whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Without wood, fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel will die down. Now the world's wisdom says, don't be a doormat. You don't have to take that. God's wisdom says, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. The world's wisdom says, take what you can from whoever you can, whenever you can, and get as much as you can. I think that's the New Jersey motto. I haven't checked, but I think it might be. God's wisdom says, it's more blessed to give than receive. For whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. For God loves a cheerful giver, and he's able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all times and all things, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. The world's wisdom says, if you don't stand up for yourself, nobody else will. God's wisdom says, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And you will heap burning coals on his head. You do right, and the God of all right will step in at some point and do what he sees fit. Do not overcome, excuse me, do not be overcome by evil. The Bible says overcome evil with they're not both right, the world's way and God's way. I mean, they are exactly the opposite in just about everything. You know what the world's wisdom says? This is another New Jersey one. Never be satisfied. Never be satisfied. If you have one child, you need nine bedrooms. If you have one child and nine bedrooms, you need an office, so you better move. If you have an office, you need a pool. If it's an above-ground pool, you need an in-ground pool. If it's an in-ground pool, it needs to be heated. You better move. If you have a car, it better be reliable. If it's reliable, it better be beautiful. And if it's beautiful, it ought to be rare. 
it's a good thing that doesn't permeate this general area, right? The world's wisdom says never be satisfied. Because that will make you happy with your blessing. Here's what God's wisdom says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and clothing, you know what? Be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and traps and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What the world's wisdom says? The world's wisdom says, if you only had that job, if you lived in that house, if you were married to that spouse, if you got that promotion, then you would be happy. But we run around trying to get those things. God's wisdom says this, I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, we tend to hear that verse connected with some guy powerlifting for Jesus, right? You know, I've been pressed a 1,000 pounds because I can do all things. The actual context is contentment. The thing that we can't seem to do, we can do through Christ. But not if we live like the world and think like the world. The world's wisdom says, look out for numero uno. God's wisdom says, if you have any encouragement with being united with Christ, any comfort in His love, any fellowship with His Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look out not for your own interests, but also those of... The world says, nice guys, finish last. You've heard these, haven't you? Have you heard this one? God's word says, God's wisdom says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Nice guys finish last? Oh no. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, there's a wisdom of this world and to a certain extent it works in the world. It will not work in God's church. It will not work in God's church. The world depends on self-promotion. The world looks to the influence of money and the confluence of celebrity and notoriety. The world says there's no such thing as bad press. As long as they're talking about you, you matter. But the church depends on God. Our tactic is prayer. Our power is God's Spirit. Our witness is not found in the vanity of self-promotion, but in the humility of self-sacrifice as it was in our Lord. The Corinthians failed to understand all this 
And that's why their church was such a mess. Instead of unity, there were factions. Instead of harmony, there was jealousy and strife. Instead of fidelity to the simple gospel, there was a fascination with clever oration, a dependence on the eloquence of men instead of the power of God. And friends, if God and God's people are in competition, God's people are going to lose that competition every single time. If God's word and man's opinion are striving for supremacy in the sanctuary, then that congregation is in for a sad situation. Because the Lord will not yield His glory to anyone. Flip back for a moment to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 19. For the Scripture doesn't stutter. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 19 is quite clear. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Our passage today is just as clear. Look again at 1 Corinthians 3, 19. We looked at 1, 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now look at 1 Corinthians 3, 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise. In their craftiness, where they think they're winning, God says, I'm going to show you that was sinning. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Now, verse 19 is a quote from two Old Testament passages. It's a quote from Job 5.13, and then verse 20 comes from Psalm 94, verse 11, because there's nothing new under the sun. The Corinthians' problems were the Jews' problems because we have a human problem, we have a sin problem. In the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, in its simple wisdom, we find a simple truth. The truth is this. God catches the wise in their craftiness. God catches the wise in their craftiness. Now, we've seen this truth again and again and again in Scripture. So the question is, when will we learn this truth? That God catches the wise in their craftiness. Let's start with the first sinner. The first sinner is Satan. When Satan first sought to wreak his havoc, we're going to see that God catches the, the, the wise in their craftiness. Now, Satan was more crafty than any beast of the field. He was wise, but he was ungodly. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 14, 13, a little bit about the devil's original hubris in all this. In Isaiah 14, 13, we hear this pathetic, satanic arrogance that moved Satan to rebel against our great and gracious God. God's Word peels back the curtains on the inner monologue of Satan and his motivation in Isaiah 14, 13. The Bible says of Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But verse 15 shows us how God catches the wise in their craftiness. In Isaiah 14, 15, saying of the bold schemer who, who arrogantly desired to ascend to heaven, the Bible says, but you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. 
Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? But you were cast out like a loathed branch. When Satan first reared his feared forked tongue in humanity's direction, he did so in the sly and from the form of a serpent. But God catches the wise in their craftiness. And that old serpent was made to slither forever, eating dust in disgust. God catches the wise in their craftiness. The form in which he came to deceive was the form in which he became humiliated. Satan was prophetically and correctly promised to be defeated by the very seed of the very woman he came to defeat in that endeavor. Friends, what is true for rebellious Satan is also true for the first rebellious human. God catches the wise in their craftiness. Eve, who believed she could be like God, she instead, in an instant, became the opposite of God. She became unholy and wholly guilty. Adam, who thought that he would not surely die, he saw his wife eat, and she didn't drop dead, so he did the math in his head, and he said, I will give the forbidden fruit a try. And friends, he returned to the dust from which he was thrust. Because God does what, friends? He catches the wise in their craftiness. God catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. Suppose you were the most powerful man on earth. Suppose you had an empire larger than any other at that moment. Suppose your empire stretched uh, from the east to Egypt, and, and to the west it crept into half of the span of modern Iran. Big empire. Uh, suppose it rose as far north as the tippy top of Turkey to the Black Sea, and it stretched all the way south to the deserts of Saudi Arabia, and in so doing it swallowed up all of Mesopotamia. A lot of land in the ancient world. Suppose your capital was so notable that historians today just call it blank the greats. The greats. They don't call New York the greats. They called his capital the greats. Now suppose you had these wonderful tiered hanging gardens and they were so beautiful and bountiful that it became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It, it stood alongside Pharaoh's pyramids and, and Alexandria's lighthouse and the Colossus of Rhodes. And if you were that powerful, you'd be Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. That's who you'd be. But your greatness would lead to a fatal arrogance to which the Lord would bear clear witness because God catches the wise in their craftiness. And the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. In a single day, you would be humbled from being an all-powerful potentate to becoming a brute beast because of an arrogant boast before the Lord of hosts. I want you to turn with me in the Bible, in the Old Testament, to Daniel 4. Daniel 4, 28. It's on page 940 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Daniel 4, 28. Most powerful man in the world of that day. Brought down in an instant because God catches the wise in their craftiness. 
He knows their thoughts, and he knows that they are futile. The Bible says in Daniel 4.28, page 940, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with wild animals and you will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what you've been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from people and he ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. He went nuts and he went out to gather nuts. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. When those sevens had finished, seven years, he raised his eyes towards heaven, and then his sanity was restored, and then I praised the Most High, not himself. I honored and glorified the God of heaven, not himself, who lives forever. This is a pagan king brought low by the Israeli God. His dominion is an eternal dominion. This is Nebuchadnezzar's better understanding. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar formerly thought he was really something. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Did you know that God catches the wise in their craftiness? And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. We see this again a hundred or so years later between Nebuchadnezzar's humbling and a man named Haman's humbling. Uh, wicked Haman peddled lies and he built a gargantuan gallows to dispose of his foes. But, but in a single night, God used a providentially placed saint to bring light. And it was Haman who ironically hung on his own gallows. His life was extinguished by the testimony of the very people he wanted to vanquish. Because God caught the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and that they are futile. 520 years later, this time it was not a Mesopotamian monarch or his maniacal henchman who was humbled. It was rather when the wrath of Rome was extended from the scepter of a usurper. It was Herod the Great's grandson. Herod the Great's grandson, who one day grandstanded, and in so doing, he was left utterly stranded. Powerful Herod Agrippa, he had no stomach to give God glory, and he wormed his way into a fleeting moment of fame, and so God gave him worms that literally ate away his stomach, and he died a painful, humiliating death. Turn with me to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 12 and verse 20. Acts 12 and verse 20 is on page 1171. 1171, Acts 12 and verse 20. Acts 12 and verse 20. Now Herod was angry 
with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal regalia, and he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, well, it's the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because Herod did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Friends, know this. God catches the wise in their craftiness, and the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and he knows that they are futile. Do you? Because this week the world's going to be whispering. What will you be listening Now, since it's true that God catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, he knows the thoughts of the wise and that they're futile, since that's true historically, since that's true biblically, since that's true eternally, that means something for me and you. It means that, Christian, we ought to cease the self-deception of employing worldly wisdom in how we live our lives. It means we must beware, brothers and sisters, that each of us, are master deceivers. It means we must ever remember that worldly wisdom is spiritual folly and we follow it to our peril. And so to that end, let's pray today. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to the areas in which we are self-deceived, where we are following worldly wisdom to win the rat race but in so doing, we are becoming rats instead of saints. Father, we ask that you gently but progressively unveil to each of us the path of righteousness in all this, that we would make or be made into a more effective and productive and Christ-like witness for Jesus this week. Holy Spirit, your wonderful, powerful, beautiful work in us this week, we ask that it would yield ever more fruit, that we would yield to your prompting and ever less to our own sinful leadings. May this summer, O Savior, be a summer where your spiritual fruit in us ripens and deepens and bountifully overflows in our lives, in our homes, onto our spouses and our children and our co-workers and our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. May the fruit of the Spirit so flow in us that your love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, godliness, and self-control are increasingly evident in us. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.